But if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 8. And as you do, I want, I want you to think about the language our culture, of our culture today as it pertains to the separation of church and state. And not so much in relation to the actual establishments or institutions, but in relation to how we're told to, to think how we're told it's okay to have our faith beliefs. You can have your beliefs, have those however you like, as long as those beliefs don't then impose upon your work, your politics, or your public life. It's what we're told, isn't it? So what then that does create, with what we're being told, and what it creates is a dichotomy. It creates a, a dichotomous way of, of living, a private life and a public life that are then lived in direct opposition to one another. So you have your, your faith on Sunday and at home. You can have all that, have it as much as you like. That's, that's great. That makes you feel good. Do it. But then don't bring that into your public life. Put it in a box. Don't bring that out into everything else. That, that's what we're told. And you know what that sounds like? That sounds absolutely ludicrous. And you know why it sounds absolutely ludicrous? Because it is absolutely ludicrous. Yet, that's how many, even professing Christians, attempt to live their lives every single day. Private life and public life in direct opposition to one another. And the world says, hey, that's okay. That's, that's the way it should be. You don't need to bring that into any other, other sphere. But what the world doesn't recognize is that living that way, thinking that way, is blatant hypocrisy that leads in a devastating direction, down a devastating path. And, and what our text is doing today is it's showing us how, how what we think and what we believe must direct everything that we say and do. Not just some things that we say and do, but everything we say and do, both private and public. It's consistent one with each other. And so that's where we are today, Proverbs chapter 8. It is going to be a lengthy chapter. We're going to read it in its entirety. So please follow along and kind of hear the call of wisdom here um, in chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the height besides the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O man, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my, my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. 
Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there were, were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Rejoice before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. So what I'm, what I'm hoping, what I'm praying that we will see today is that chapter 8 is the perfect chapter to follow, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The chapters that we looked at last week where, where Solomon warned his son to avoid uh, uh, adultery, uh, avoid her all to, to, together, avoid the, the forbidden woman. Don't be seduced by this for, forbidden woman. Avoid her. Pursue wisdom instead. The call essentially being for the son to marry wisdom and flee from folly. Stay as far away from folly as you possibly can. In chapter 8, what this is is a continuation of this plea with a voice of wisdom being presented here as a woman. Now, I've heard many kind of refer to this and maybe even ask, why is wisdom here being referred to as a woman? And some kind of joke, joking and in jest say, well, isn't it obvious why wisdom is being referred to here as a woman? But in, in all seriousness, um, it's being presented here as a woman because the Hebrew word for wisdom is a feminine noun. And so that, that's a feminine noun in the Hebrew. And it's also because of the audience of which Solomon is writing to. He's speaking to his, his son. A young son who, like all of us, is going to be presented with proposal after proposal to choose woman folly whether that's sexual or, or otherwise. There will never be a, a shortage of offerings for us to do unwise things that are gonna lead us away from Christ. There are always gonna be temptations that can lead us down a path that will lead us away from Christ, which is why, why woman wisdom is standing in the streets. She's standing at the crossroads of two paths, the path that leads to life and then the path that leads to Sheol, the path that leads to hell. 
standing at the crossroads and she's crying out among all the other voices that are trying to vie for for our attention, trying to to get our attention to lead us down the other path. Woman wisdom is crying out here with basically what amounts to a marriage proposal. Marry me. Keep your eyes upon me. Choose me, not folly. So point number one, say yes to wisdom's proposal. And I'll be honest, in, in writing that, that point, I kept hearing in my head say yes to the dress, but I was like, I am not, I am not going to make that a, a point in the passage, in the sermon, but say yes to wisdom's proposal. Whether you're the simple person or the foolish person, the immature Christian or the unbeliever, we're being told in verses one through five, learn prudence, learn sense, Get wisdom, marry wisdom, and remain faithful to wisdom, not folly. Why? Point number two, and I tell you, they're not all going to be as short as point number one. In fact, point number two will be longer than all the others. But point number two, the path of wisdom is right and true. There's a reason wisdom takes her stand at the crossroads. Because it's the point of decision making. A decision has to be made. Do I go this way or do I go that way? We're left with a choice. and we're, made, we're left with that choice every single day. Sometimes multiple times throughout the day. Do I going to go this way or am I going to that, go that way? And again, we're always going to choose what we desire most. It's by nature. We are going to choose who and what we desire most, what is deemed most desirable to us. But this is different than, than choosing uh, our most desired flavor of ice cream. Like we can walk in and we're going to have a, an ice cream and I may choose Rocky Road and you're going to choose chocolate chip and somebody else is going to choose mint or vanilla. Th- those are all choices. What this is before us, this is a matter of choosing between right and wrong. And some of you like have such deep convictions about your ice cream that it might be a matter of right and wrong. But in all seriousness, this is a matter of choosing literally between right and wrong, life and death. Not just what's right for you or, or, or right for, for, for me, but what's right for all people in all places throughout all times in every single culture throughout history. There's truth and then there's untruth. It goes against everything that we hear within our culture today. But there's truth and there's untruth. Not just what's right for me, truth. That's picking out my favorite flavor of ice cream. That's personal opinion. That's personal preference. What we're talking about here is life or death, right and wrong, true or untrue. And this is where folly is screaming out all around while we're standing at the crossroads. She's saying, ignore all that. Ignore all that. Choose what's right for you. Do what's going to make you happy. That's what we hear within our culture, isn't it? Do what's going to make you happy. All of this which sounds good to the simple and to the foolish ear. And let's not think for a moment that even if we're walking in wisdom that we can't have moments of simpleness and that we can't act sometimes like fools. We all are prone to deception. But if what's going to make us happy in the here and now goes against the word of God, goes against what the Bible is saying, we have to understand that's not wisdom. That's folly. 
It's neither right nor true. It's wickedness disguised as the, it's like the big bad wolf disguised, disguised as, as grandma and it's not gonna do you any harm, right? No, it's gonna kill you. You're gonna, it's gonna lead you down the path of folly. It's gonna lead you down to destruction. That's why wisdom is standing at the crossroads screaming out in verse six, from my lips comes what is right, not hers. My lips, verse seven, from my mouth will utter truth, not hers. My mouth, verse eight, all the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted and crooked in them. Verse nine, they are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. See, it's, it's the Bible, not culture, not popular opinion, not personal preference. It's the Bible that defines right and wrong and identifies sin as sin. What folly wants to do is folly wants to come along and, and wants to tell us what we want to hear. It tries to convince us that our sin isn't really sin. It be kind of puts it in a gray area. And what that does, it begins to create compromise. It begins to lead us down a path that we are not intended to go. That's what we, we see right here before us. And what, what we see throughout the Bible is the Bible often being referred to as a lamp and a light, right? We've talked about this multiple different times. And the reason for that is because the lamp or the light makes something clear that is unclear. And when the light shines on this path that we're on, this difficult road that we're all traversing, when that light shines on the path and it says, hey, right there in front of you, that's foolish activity. <laughs> it's going to lead you potentially to destruction. That light is shining on that to make it clear. You have a choice to make. Are you going to choose wisdom or are you going to choose folly? Again, this choice could come multiple times throughout a day. We're presented with this choice, wisdom or folly. And that's where wisdom isn't just knowing right from wrong, right? We can blame it on our kids all day long and they say, well, they know right from wrong, but we can point it right directly to ourselves as well. It's one thing to know right and wrong. It's another thing to do right, to walk in wisdom. See, having wisdom isn't just knowing right from wrong. It's actually walking in wisdom and choosing right over wrong. Possessing wisdom means we walk in wisdom. And what we need to understand is that this happens in our lives. The more we grow to, to love what the Lord loves and to hate what the Lord hates. As we mature as, as Christians. But it doesn't happen overnight. I wish it did. We don't become Christians and then make wise decisions all the time. It would be nice, right? Become a Christian and then immediately every decision is going to be a wise decision from this point forward. <laughs> like that would be nice. But we have to understand even the wisest of Christians still make foolish decisions at times. We can all raise our hands and testify. We don't need to because we all know the answer. But as we grow in wisdom, we begin to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. It's a process. Verse 13, we see the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, which begs the question. It's a very important question for every single one of us to deal with, regardless of our age. We, do we love what God loves and hate what God hates? Or rephrase that, are we continually growing to learn and to love what God loves and to hate what God hates? Again, it's a serious question. Because if the answer is no, 
then we have to ask ourselves, do we truly fear the Lord? And if we don't fear the Lord, as the text says, what does that say about our relationship with him? What does that say about us? Because flip back over to chapter 1, verse 7 for a moment. Kind of the keynote verse, the key theme verse for all of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. Love the page to sound turning. Whether that's your app making the sound or your actual pages of a Bible. I, I, I love that sound. But chapter set 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I want you to follow along with the argument here. Meaning if we don't fear the Lord, and let's pause there for a second. We've illustrated fearing the Lord. And I think sometimes it's easier to illustrate this and to define it because awe and wonder and, and understanding of who he is, all those things fall into defining. But an illustration of where we see this is illustrated as we've looked at Isaiah chapter 6. And we've seen in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision from the, of the Lord, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and seated upon the throne. He doesn't see King Uzziah who had reigned, who had just died and reigned for 52 years as sovereign king. Doesn't see him. He, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees also these six-winged seraphim, angelic beings circling around the throne room of God. And day and night, they're crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Crying out, holy is this God. And in witnessing this and in seeing this and understanding this, not, not just here, but in the depths of his marrow and his heart there, he sees, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a, it's a response of, of awe. It's a response of repentance. It's a response of belief. It's fearful, yes, but it's a fearful belief because he's seeing who the Lord is in truth and at the same time he's seeing who he is as well. He's recognizing holy, perfect, righteous God. He is not. He is a sinful man as are we. See, fearing the Lord is understanding God's ways are always right. He is true and he is holy and everything else is wrong. His ways are right. So if, if we're not growing to understand that, if we don't fear the Lord, if we don't love and grow to love what the Lord loves and to hate what the Lord hates, the text tells us here we don't have knowledge because that's the beginning of knowledge. We don't, have, we don't know wisdom, which means in turn we don't know Jesus because what we're doing is we're despising wisdom and instruction. The same thing we see there in verse 7 of chapter 1. And that is what fools do. That's what fools do. That's why wisdom's crying out at the crossroads. She's crying, don't do that. Don't go down that path. Choose me. Marry me. Remain faithful to me. My ways are always right. Always right will never, ever, ever lead you astray. Why would you want to go down the other path? That, that's what she's crying out. Which brings us to number three. Being married to wisdom brings great reward. 
Being married to wisdom brings great reward. Look at verse 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Now, notice the commitment here in this language. The love commitment here in this language here. What is it saying? If we love wisdom, what? We will be loved by wisdom. If we love the Lord, we will be loved by who? The Lord. So, for the one who is truly seeking Christ, truly seeking him, not heaven, not, not the avoidance of hell, not the rewards, but seeking Christ, putting eyes upon Christ, what does the text tell us? Christ will be found. Great reward. We cannot, will not come up empty-handed if we seek him with all of our heart. We see the word diligently there. It means with intentionality. Think back again to the short parable of the man finding the treasure in the field. Remember back in Matthew? And in finding the, the treasure in the field, what does he do? He goes and he sells everything he has to be able to buy the field. Is it because he wants to buy the field? Put up a nice farm and crops and everything. It's a great plot of land. The landscape's awesome. No. What's he want? He wants the treasure. And he sells everything he has to obtain the treasure. And what we're told here in Proverbs and throughout Scripture is if we love and seek the Lord like this, we will not come up empty-handed. We will receive Christ. We will not be turned away. Now, here's the question that came into my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that it likely is coming into at least some of your minds because you're hearing this and you may be feeling like this type of love is just unattainable. Like I, I, you can never love and seek Christ to this degree. You, you, you kind of must be like, you have to be super Christian for this to be the case in your life. And you're feeling like you're hearing this and saying, okay, that's right. I, I agree with you, Jeremy, but I don't know how that can be me. It's not me. Well, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the path of justice. Look what's being said here. And more importantly, along with that, look who's saying it. So who is the I here? Who's I? It's wisdom. And we've seen wisdom is ultimately Jesus. And if he walks in the way of righteousness, as Christ does, if he walks in the way of justice, true and right, how can he fail to keep his promises? He can't. He won't. All of his promises are true. So, brings us back to verse 17. We see a promise. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently. What? Find me. That's what we see here. N nowhere, nowhere does he say, I love those who are already super Christians or those who are super spiritual or those who have it all together and have already got their life all cleaned up and made right and, and already doing all. Nowhere do we see that. He simply says he loves those who love him. Hear that? 
He loves those who love him. And connected to that love is the promise of an eternal inheritance that we see in verse 21. Now, here's what I find absolutely incredible about all of this. The New Testament tells us, the New Testament says we love him because he first loved us. That while we were still sinners, while we were not even on the right path, as far off the path as we could possibly be, Christ died for us. <laughs> That's good news. That's good news right there. Church, Christ died for us when we were at our worst. And as a result of his love, we can now love him. Meaning our love is not rooted in us. It's not rooted in us. If it's rooted in us, it's failing. It's not rooted in us, but exclusively in the grace of God. So no matter how far you may feel that you are away from the Lord right now, love him and you will be loved. Seek him diligently and he will be found. Guaranteed. Number four. Wisdom is woven into the fabric of creation. That's what we see in verses 22 through 31. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me, me being wisdom at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. Now what's being communicated here? Why does the voice of wisdom make these declarations here? Is it to point out the beauty of creation? Maybe. Or is, is it to allude to Christ's pre-existence and involvement in creation? Possibly. Jesus, no doubt, was intricately involved in, in all the work of creation. We see it clearly in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've looked at it in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And here in Colossians and in Hebrews 1, 3, he's telling us all things hold together through him by his word. Or he's holding them together. So yes, yes, wisdom is in the fabric of creation. Christ is holding all things together. That's big understanding, but I believe the emphasis is even kind of more simple than that. I think the emphasis of these verses 22 through 31 are telling us, reminding us that everything God does, did, will do, is accompanied with and preceded by wisdom. Absolutely everything. Everything. It's telling us that all God's actions, not some of God's actions, all of God's actions are wise from creation forward, even beyond before creation. So even what seems like foolishness to us, and let's admit it, when we're walking this difficult path, there's a lot of things that can seem foolish. There are a lot of things that we're just like, I don't understand, I don't get it. But what we need to understand is that even the things that look like foolishness are firmly secure in the wisdom of God. Everything is secure in the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is woven into the fabric of creation. That's why, as followers of Christ, 
as children of God, wisdom must accompany and precede everything that we say and do. Everything. It shapes how we think and how we live. Why? Because there's an order to how things work. To the way things work. All things work as God has designed them to work. He's the creator. And he's designed all things to work a certain way. So if we walk in wisdom, we walk according to God's design. We walk apart from wisdom, outside of wisdom. We walk in foolishness. We walk counter to God's design. So considering the context of what this passage precedes or follows, take, take marriage as an example. God designed marriage to be between one biological male and one biological female for life. This is God's design in the text. Yet what does woman folly do within our, our culture? She attempts to seduce us to commit adultery. To whether that's physical, whether that's emotional, whether that's visual, however that looks. She's trying to make us to break those vows, to do things outside of marriage, to do things that God has not ordained. To call things marriage that are not marriage. All of which is counter to God's design and brings about disastrous and dangerous consequences. Now that hits home, but let's bring it even closer to home. Think about how many times that you have said something that you wish you could take back. And you've said something with like foot inserted into mouth, right? I know that doesn't affect anybody in this room, right? It affects all of us. We've all said things like, oh, I wish I could take that back. And we recognize it immediately after. We say things in the moment of frustration. We get on like our social media and, and we start writing things right out of frustration. We've opened our mouths and we've spoken out of frustration. You know what that's not? That's not wise. We know that's not wise, but it's not wise. Wisdom, however, is letting every thought be taken captive by the word of God. Which in turn means every word and action is taken captive by the word of, of God. So we're about to spout off at the mouth. We're about to give somebody the, the one, two. I'm going to let you have it. And, and before we do that, whether it's on social media, which we're really brave in those endeavors or behind an email. <laughs> or we've gotten to the point where we're going to say it out loud. What we do is say, stop, pause. How do I filter this through the word of God? And you think about that. If we did that before everything that we said or wrote, our, our, our life would be a lot less complicated. Our, our marriage relationships would work a whole lot better. Our, our personal relationships, our, our, all of those, we, if we chose our words through the lens of, of Scripture, we would hurt far fewer people that we love. It would work the way God designed it to be. Same holds true for everything else that God created. Wisdom is woven into the fabric of creation. And if we walk in wisdom, things will ultimately, and I say ultimately, will go well for us. Doesn't mean that we will not feel the effects of sin in the fallen world. We will. But ultimately, things will go better for us if we walk in wisdom. 
If you work hard, you're more likely to earn a paycheck. <laughs> if, if you are one who is going to watch your words through the lens of Scripture, you're less likely to say something that's going to be offensive to, to someone. If you're going to, to discipline your children through, through love, you're going to be less likely, if you put those filters up and guard, you're going to be less likely to react out of anger. You're going to pause, move back, handle things accordingly with wisdom. But choose to listen to folly? It's going to have consequences. But now number five. Marrying wisdom leads to eternal life. This is wisdom's final appeal. At the crossroads. She's laid out all the reasons why we should choose her over folly. And now she's saying, blessed are those who keep my ways. As verses 35 and 36 tell us, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Two paths. One leads to life and one leads to Sheol. One leads to death. And what, what this isn't, it's not just, just live right and everything will be okay. That's, that's not what it is. We're not trying to make just morally good people, to turn people into really good church-going people who obey all the rules. Though that sometimes can seem like the aim and sometimes can seem like the focus. If we can just get so-and-so to come to church on a regular basis and not cuss and to do X, Y, and Z, then we feel like we have done our, our job. Or maybe we're going to feel better about ourselves if that's the case. You know, I'm doing these things so the Lord must love me. I must be right. But that's not what disciple making is and that's not what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not made by what he or she does. Or made by what Christ did. A disciple is not made by what he or she does. We are made by what Christ did. And that's why the call we see from, from wisdom here in Proverbs is essentially the same call we see from Jesus. It's a call to follow me. Follow me. And to the world, this path looks like, it seems like, complete foolishness. Really? In fact, the Apostle Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the sake of time, we will have this one on the screen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of, of the world? This, this world that we're living in? For, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the, the, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, all people, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Jesus is wisdom personified. 
And while Jesus did live the life of perfect, obedient wisdom that we were intended to, to live, he didn't do that just to set a great moral example for us to follow. It's a noble ambition. We obviously and definitely want to be more like Christ. But the only way that we have any chance of being like Jesus is by knowing Jesus. By loving Jesus. And you know how we come to know and to love Jesus? Through the preaching of Christ crucified. Which seems like complete foolishness to this world. Whether it's from the pastor or the parishioner whether it's from me or from you, me here on a sunny morning or in a counseling session or from you in your workplace, at home, across the dinner table, we collectively, as the church body, we stand in the streets. We stand at the crossroads of our culture with voices of folly screaming out all around trying to engage those we're trying to engage and trying to attempt to tempt and to entice and to steer away. All the while we're standing. We're standing at the crossroads and we're proclaiming Christ crucified. Sounds foolishness to the listening world. Even sounds foolish to many who would profess to be Christians. And even people that we know and that we love and that we're praying for right now, they will turn their backs and walk away. They'll choose the wrong path. But because we love, there we remain at preaching Christ crucified at the crossroads. Why? Because to we who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the wisdom of God. It is the path that leads to everlasting life. And it's once again why I'll say we must continue to preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day. Multiple times a day. Because we are going to be tempted more than we can ever imagine to deviate from the path. To take a different direction. We continue to love and to seek and to place our eyes upon Christ. And we will obtain him. So when we come to the Lord's table like we do today, we're coming to the table and we're saying, Jesus, your way is better. Now, in, in fact, we're saying, Jesus, you're better. <laughs> you're better. Not just your way. You're better. Maybe a difficult season of life for you right now. You may be being tempted by folly right now, stronger than you've ever been tempted by folly to go in various directions. But this table, what it is, is a reminder that Jesus is better than everything else. He's better than everything else. It's a reminder that Christ, yes, he lived for you in complete humanity. He died for you in complete humanity. He rose from the grave. Fully God, fully man. To give us a hope and a future that we don't deserve to have. And he will return to claim his bride once and for all. So in partaking of this table, what we're doing is we're once again, we're standing at the crossroads and we're again in this moment saying, I choose you, Jesus. I choose you. You're better. I choose you. So if this is your declaration today, then we invite you to come to the table. 
If, if today, if this is not your declaration, you cannot say that you are trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death, then we do ask you not to partake of this table today, but rather to contemplate what you have heard preached and choose the path that leads to life. Choose Christ. Seek Christ. Love Christ and he will love you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we come to this table today, those of us who come, we come declaring Jesus is better. Jesus is our treasure. In Jesus we find our great reward. And while folly looks to tempt us to take a different path, we ask that you will make the path of righteousness bright. Light it up like a runway and help us to see and to keep our eyes on Jesus. To keep our eyes on the prize until we one day finish the race. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take time now to, to prepare our hearts to, to come to the table. So take time, bow your head, take time to pray and prepare your hearts. And when you're ready, you come.